I'll meet you anytime you want in my Italian restaurant. Sam, why are you singing? Why am I singing, Andre? Well, it's because our next guest, David Green, knows everything there is to know about karaoke across the country, and has a few tips on great restaurants in Washington, D.C. Is that really all you got out of that conversation? That's true, that's true. And I want to apologize to our listeners for bringing what is, at best, uh, amateur karaoke to the podcast. But no, David Green is our next guest. We had a fascinating conversation um, about the current controversies around Fox News and Tucker Carlson, obligations of the media in American politics and our polarized world. Yes, definitely. His time abroad reporting on Ukraine last year as well as in Libya during the Arab Springs. He wrote a book um, in his time traveling through Siberia. He has done enormous work abroad and both here in the United States and our conversations with him about it were fascinating. Yeah, I was particularly struck by his reflections on how uh, during his time at the Baltimore Sun, um, covering the beginning of the Iraq War um, in the early 2000s and the obligations of, of journalists at a time of war and crisis. So definitely you're not going to want to miss this. Make sure that you're subscribed to The Fly on all programs. And let's dive into our conversation with David Green. Let's do it. for joining us today on the fly. Uh, we're going to get started with just our lightning round. Our few quick questions. So our first question is, given that your wife is a restaurateur and you started your career in DC and now you're back here for a live recording of Left, Right, and Center, uh, what is your go-to place for restaurants in DC, you know, if I said if I said the wrong thing here, my wife would probably like <laughs> destroy me. Um, but I will say this honestly: it's Compass Rose, which is my wife's first business in DC. It's international street food, which I love. The vibe, it's just there's so much soul mm -hmm. there, which I love. Um, the space that she created, I love, uh, and I've been gathering with friends there for years now. Um, so I am I am completely 100% biased, um, which I will admit, but that's my spot. That's amazing. And so we were talking earlier, you're a huge karaoke aficionado. What's your go-to karaoke song? Pink Houses by Mellencamp, mm -hmm. or if I'm feeling a little more mellow, uh, Mandy by Barry Manilow. And those choices are both because I love them, but also the songs that I actually can sing even remotely well. The list is... <laughs> About two, and, the, and those are them. <laughs> and going along with that, what's your favorite karaoke bar in the U.S.? Oh, wow. Um, that's a really hard one. I... I don't know. It's, the, it's a bar in South Beach that Mo and I <laughs> went to years ago, and I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, and it was incredible, and may it rest in peace. It was the basement of a hotel, I think the Shelburne Hotel in South Beach, and I have so many memories of going there with 
like political staffers when I was was covering Hillary Clinton's campaign, and including Mo, the director of your institute here. <laughs> um, and I'm gonna have to scream to him through the wall and remember the name of it. But it was like it was so special, and it was everything I love about karaoke. Um, there's also a bar uh, called the Gaslight in Santa Monica, California, that is wonderful. Um, it's a little intimidating because so many Southern Californians like sing super well. Uh, so you go there and it's like, oh my God, like there are real people here. Like it's not just me. Um, but that's another really big favorite of mine. Hmm. Um, so one of the reasons that we're super excited to have you here um, from, a, from a journalism standpoint is that you've sort of done it all. Um, you, know, you obviously have a lot of experience both as a foreign correspondent and covering uh, politics here in the United States, but you also touch on sports and have um, some some sports journalism projects, and you've interviewed uh, a ton of celebrities, um, Jimmy Buffett, Dolly Parton, Matt Damon. Um, who would you say was your favorite celebrity interview in your past? Boy, you're coming with great questions. I'm supposed to be a great questioner, and you're coming with the best questions. Um, my favorite celebrity... Um, you know, I'm going to go back to Bette Midler, uh, and I'll tell you why. And, and it's hard to come up with, with a list um, of favorites because there were so many, and I feel so lucky. But, you know, Bette Midler is, you know, an actor, a singer, a comic. I mean, she's just, she was one of the most brilliant entertainers I think I ever spoke to. And she, um, she had written a book. It was really funny. And, you know, I came at the interview with a list of questions and we were, you know, I was going down the list of questions. Um, and I asked her at one point, like, what do you really want it to say on your, your, your gravestone? Because that was one thing that she told jokes about. You know, she joked, she was like, oh, you know, bet dead or whatever. And then she kind of like stopped and let out this weird, like what felt like a cry, but I didn't know if it was a fake cry. And I was kind of you know, thrown off because I didn't know where this was going. But I remember that moment because I just threw away my notes and I just sort of said, I don't know where this is going, but I'm going to follow her where she's going. And I just said, you know, are you, are you crying? And she said, yeah, I mean, I cry at traffic lights. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I said, you know, why are you tearing up? And she said, because what, what I really wanted to say on my gravestone is that Bette Mittler planted something like a million trees, you know, in Manhattan. And what became so clear to me as we talked is that, you know, this is a, a celebrity who is defined in a certain way um, and that deep in her heart, she wants to be remembered, you know, for, for more than that. And just that moment created a much more intimate, personal, authentic conversation. And I learned more about interviewing from that interview than, than maybe any other, just that, you know, you want to come in prepared you want to have your list, you want to stick to it as much as it feels right, but just always be ready to, to take a detour when someone is taking you there. Um, and, and that was a lesson I, that has stayed with me for forever. That's incredible. And speaking of celebrities, we recently just heard the news about Tucker Carlson leaving Fox News. So we wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Like sure. what pushed him out and what's your take on all of it? I wish I could claim to know what pushed him out, um, and, I, and I don't know, but I will tell you my reaction, um, and this is honestly politics aside, and I really mean that. I think one of, the thing that is, one of the things that has become so poisonous in our media world is that 
like every single person you look at behind an anchor desk on a show, you now immediately wonder like, what is their slant? Where are they coming from? What are they going to lecture me on? What are their politics? And, and that's devastating to me because, you know, I, I grew up like reading the history of people like Walter Cronkite and watching the evening news with people like Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings and, and Dan Rather. And I just viewed that anchor desk as so incredibly sacred like it was just this this beautiful monument to trust and if you watch someone or listen to you know a news anchor you know on the radio it was just there was this element of trust like you're not coming at me with opinions you're not coming at me to to lecture me about your politics and to tell me how i should should feel about something and you know tucker to me represents the other extreme like if the road has taken us from from the world where i loved in media to this extreme where it's like, you don't even, there's not even a, you don't, no one's even pretending anymore. Um, I don't want to say no one. Like I have a lot of colleagues in, in the business who, who are still following the tradition of, of being, you know, honest, just news reporters and news broadcasters. But, but there are a lot who are not. And Tucker really represented that to me. So his being gone is like, just, I hope like one crack in this, this structure that we have to bring down if we want to restore trust in, in this business. Um, so it was something that, you know, politics aside, I mean, I, I really, you know, celebrate and think it was a good thing. So diving in, um, I guess more, more deeply on the edit, that idea of, of trust and journalism, um, you know, one of the big criticisms of, of Tucker Carlson before and certainly right now is, um, his willingness to entertain and conspiracy theories, um, on, on his program and with a significant platform. Um, and you mentioned how prior to the sort of partisanization and polar, polarization of our media, how the, the broadcasting desk was this monument to truth. But also, is there a tension there with the, the, the need for journalists to be pressing and inquiring? And clearly there's, there's a limit and a temper of, you know, Thinking back to, you know, the late twentieth century, you know, think about the Pentagon Papers, where, <clears throat> you know, there have been instances in the in American history where the government hasn't been forthright, or when people in positions of power haven't been pressing the dominant, as haven't been pressing the truth, but have been presenting something else. So, how do you find that balance, uh, particularly when, you know, we're I think grappling as a society right now as to when are you just asking questions? I mean, I, I you're pointing out one of the the great tensions and obstacles for everyone in this business today. Um, I mean, I, I look back, you know, I was covering the White House during the beginning of the Iraq war. Um, and, you know, it was really, it was really, really hard. Um, because, you know, I'll give you one example, like it, Dick Cheney, you know, with George W. Bush's blessing, I mean, they were, they were trying to draw a tie between Saddam Hussein and 9-11. That, you know, I knew, and I think we all knew that there, you know, if I mean, there was just no evidence of that. And so, you know, I would go out and do stories when I was at the Baltimore Sun, interviewing people out on the streets and just saying like, you know, why do you believe this? Like the, the Bush administration has not presented any convincing evidence that there's a tie there. And they'd be like, well, you know, I mean, Saddam just seems like a, an evil guy and I could totally see that being the case. And you know, I just press and I'd be like, you know, it's, it's not true. And I would say over and over again, like in my stories, like 
This is not true. And yet people believed it. And at some point, it's like, is it our job in journal in journalism to, to bash people over the heads with a baseball bat and be like, you're crazy lunatics for believing this stuff? I mean, that that's going too far. Like, you can't do that. And so all we can do is, I mean, take truth to power and give people the truth. Um, and, you know, we came under a lot of criticism in the, in the White House press corps and in, in journalism in general. You know, a lot of people think that we did not do our jobs well enough. And, and we, you know, have some responsibility for the Iraq war even taking place. Um, I don't agree with that, but I also totally understand why people want to explore that question. And, you know, it's been, you know, many years since then, and I still carry that with me, this element of, you know, I don't want to say doubt. I'm, I'm proud of the work I did, but like the question of like, should we have done more? Did we give the American people everything that they needed to know? Did we ask the toughest questions imaginable? Did we question the intelligence as well as we could have? And I think, you know, people in my sort of generation of, of covering politics in Washington and war at that point, you know, all think about that a lot in our own ways. But there is something about that period now that almost feels quaint and innocent compared to, I think, what we're seeing today. It's like that to me is a rational conversation that you can have a really important one because the stakes were so high like did us not doing our jobs well enough cause a war that killed that many people like heavy stuff but now there's not even a like there's not even room to have that conversation you know you can't even like if you ask questions that seem too tough it's like the assumption is that you're coming at it from your own political angle and you have an agenda if you don't ask questions that are hard enough you know, you must be on the side of the people who you're covering because you must have an agenda and your own politics. There is no assumption that a journalist is like doing their job for the sake of like this really critically important mission anymore. And, and that is where the fundamental problem lies, I think. We have to take care of that problem if we're going to even return to some of the conversations that, that you're talking about. And, and that it, it keeps me up at night worrying that, that there's just, you know, the trust is gone. The assumption that like everyone is bringing their own agenda in in when you're a journalist is just so present everywhere that there's no space to even have the kind of conversation that we're having right now. And it sounds like if I'm hearing you correctly, there's you're being pulled in two directions from as a, as a journalist in both popular sentiment that popular belief that may or may not be true, and then also the narratives being pressed by those who have platforms and those that have political positions. Um, yeah, pulled everywhere. I mean, the, the most recent case was, you know, the, the Wuhan lab, which, you know, a year or two ago, anyone who would suggest that, that COVID generated from that lab, you know, was dismissed by a lot of people, particularly on the left, for being a, a conspiracy theorist. Um, now, you know, the government is taking that much more seriously. You know, I can understand why, why people who believe that felt that they were dismissed. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a good kind of case study in in what the conversation should be and where the triggers are that cause it to completely fall apart when we can't, you know, we just start labeling each other. You're a conspiracy theorist. Oh, well, you hate me because I, you know, supported Donald Trump. So you don't even like give credit to some of the theories that I believe in. You're a jerk. Like, I can't even talk to you. I mean, it's just like, it's like, who are we? Mm. And, and just to pull on that thread one more time, you mentioned the, the lab, um, like the Wuhan lab theory is an example of um, of a theory being being dismissed, the new evidence coming to light, or at least entering the mainstream conversation more from what appeared to be a fringe to begin with. 
Do you think that happens equally? You obviously have a, uh, a show called Left, Right, and mm-hmm. Center. Do you think that um, in what the mainstream is is contained equally between left and right, or do you think that conservatives or liberals have more of a say as to who initially gets labeled a conspiracy theorist or who initially gets labeled uh, a manipulator of the truth? I mean, I it's such a good question that I think about constantly because it is so easy when you start going down that road um, to get into like the trap of whataboutism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's dangerous because if you say have, you know, an administration, for example, that tells lies, if you have an administration that encourages hate and racist attitudes, um, it's not like you want to take those things and say like, well, you know, the left does this and this to, to try and compare because those things are not comparable. And so when, when people hear something that strikes them as, as that, like I understand the anger. But at the same time, um, you know, at our core, like respect is what is at the end of the day, like important listening to one another. And that's where like there has to be a feeling of equality. And that's what I try to do on the show, like to to not make everything, you know, well, this side's doing this and that's comparable to that. But at least to like push someone and try and understand like why they believe a certain thing. And you have to do that with everybody. And and that's where sometimes I feel like people, you know, on the right can feel dismissed because as soon as they sort of explore something that maybe they've heard from an incendiary politician, it's like if someone is hearing that, it's like they'll immediately jump to a conclusion and be like, oh, well, clearly you're a hater, like, you know, like Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, I understand why the passions are so fierce and why people, you know, feel things that are, that, you know, I, I mean, I, I cannot put myself into a position of someone who feels that they are, you know, that someone is being racist towards them. Um, you know, I feel lucky as a, as a privileged white male. So I, I can't, you know, there are many times when I can't put myself in the position of someone who is feeling like a policy is hateful or racist. So I take nothing away from people who feel like that deep pain and feel like they don't want to listen to someone who is saying something that they find tremendously offensive. Like at the same time, I think, you know, look for the conversations where maybe you hear something that's bothering you, but that maybe this person doesn't hate you. And that like you can actually say like, look, you know, this policy really troubles me because it takes away my my rights. It takes away my freedom. It takes away my right to love someone I love. Um, but like, help me understand why you're buying into that because I really want to understand like what it is in your life that that makes you believe what you're hearing, and maybe we can find some sort of space for a conversation. That standard has to be applied to both sides equally, and and that's you know if I can play some role in making sure that 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 happens, then I'm here for it. Definitely, I completely agree that I think now we're in just like such a polarized environment that it's become a personality type and like people are just so quick to judge other people and place labels and it just creates more divide between like two parties and like even just in the news that we're listening to it seems that like news now is becoming more and more partisan and i wanted to ask what your opinion is on partisan news like channels and if they should even have a space in the journalism industry 
Yeah, I the fact that you're even saying partisan news makes me like upset. No, you're not making me upset, but I mean <laughs> the fact that because I I never, you know, I and this is going to sound like I'm like some you know ancient creature, um, but like I think the field of media and and news organizations were so careful twenty years ago. I mean, you know, you knew when someone was sitting there behind an anchor desk and delivering news. And you knew when someone was a commentator and who was going to be, you know, basically offering opinions. I mean, it, it's not that harsh. Like, and, and newspapers, too. Like, there was this assumption that, okay, like, I'm reading a news story or, you know, I'm reading an op-ed or I'm reading, you know, something from the editorial board of this newspaper. And a lot of that feels old-fashioned, but the principles that all of that was, you know, we're standing up for, I think we have to find a way to, to bring them back. So I think the problem is, like, I have no problem with hearing people you know, debate stuff passionately in our media space. Like, it's it's helpful. It's, like, really helpful to have people coming together, offering opinions, you know, fighting, debating, and, like, figuring out a way that their diversity of thought can actually, like, bring us to better solutions. Like, it's all great. And so I have no problem with, you know, space in the media for, for partisanship. It's part of the process. We're, we're like an amazing democracy where all of that should happen, Always, and there should be space for that in our media, but there should also be space for for truth telling, and you know all the great work of journalists who are in this business to, you know, to really hold people in power accountable. And I'm so afraid that like those core missions are just being undermined by both, you know, partisan news being ubiquitous for one thing, and the assumption being that like all news is partisan. And that's even more dangerous. Um, so yeah, like I'm really, I'm really troubled. You know, I, it's interesting. I think um, over the years that we've been doing this podcast, we've had both a lot of journalists and a lot of partisans and political operatives come in and all raise that same issue um, about the partisanization and the polarization, the feeling that every piece of news has an angle to it. Um, interestingly, right now, with the situation with Fox News and and the Dominion lawsuit and, and perhaps some of the other situations going on over there, this is maybe the first time in a while that it's felt like our legal system is actually taking action and, and to change, perhaps this isn't the intent, but it is the effect, to change the behavior of our media. Which I don't know, like I'm of two minds about. Like on the one hand, I, I agree with you and many others about the the unhealthy way that our that our media is is conducting itself now, the way that we approach journalism as an American public. On the other hand, we obviously want an independent press uh, and an independent um, journalistic culture. Um, so, do you think it's time? Do you think that we need some sort of legal or or political muscle behind changing the way that our journalism is is structured now, given the situation that we're in? We we do need muscle. Um, I just don't know whose muscles. And that's what I try to figure out. Like you mentioned that, that you know, sort of the law might be pushing in that direction with, with the Dominion case, which I think is great. Um, the fact that one of the loudest, most infuriating, bombastic anchors in the history of, of American television is out of a job, like maybe that's a step in the right direction. Um, but I'm going to be like super idealistic, idealistic, like, and maybe way too much so. But I don't think this is what a lot of Americans want. 
and I'm hoping that what we're seeing, like, you know, Tucker being gone, um, you know, the, the pressure on Fox from this lawsuit, like it's actually a reflection of the fact that there is this disconnect and that there are a lot of people in this country who, like, while they will acknowledge their addiction to, like, things like Fox News, um, they also, like, they don't want to fight all the time. And they actually, like, see room in their lives for productive conversations with people they disagree with and some sort of, like, meeting in the middle. I mean, you look at some of these issues, like, and, you know, it's okay for people to have, <clears throat> you know, different levels of um, support versus opposition on an issue. Like, we're in a democracy. But, you know, I think about abortion, for example. It's like if you listen to, you know, the, you know, um, the media, you would think that there are two sides of the abortion debate. They're like people who want to ban every single, you know, all access to the procedure, like in the entire country always, you know, or people who just, you know, hate the right and conservatives for even like trying to take one incremental step. Whereas actually, like if you ask most Americans what polls show is like there's there is a massive middle ground, like very few people want to ban the procedure entirely. Like there's an openness to like figuring out like how to like help people who have, you know, religious based and, and morality based arguments against abortion, like help them understand like why abortions must be accessible, like in many, many cases and like have that conversation. And, you know, there are, there are abortion rights activists who I think are willing to say like, okay, like my neighbor is, you know, a, an, an incredibly strong Catholic who doesn't understand you know, this at all and sees abortion as murder, but like, I, I want to sit down with them and I want to hear like why they believe that. And like, if they're willing, like, let me, let me talk to them and explain why, you know, you know, as a woman like this, this is like so absolutely critically to my life, my right to choose. And I will never abandon that core belief, but at least I can understand why we see things differently. Like that's the kind, you don't even know that that conversation is possible if you listen to, to the media. Um, you know, Joe Biden just, you know, on on the the rights of transgender athletes that was like a a middle of the road policy proposal that ticked off like everybody <laughs> um but i actually think and i haven't done my own interviews and gone out into the country but like based on the the kind of polling and sense i get from journalists who have been out there like it it's a policy that like a lot of the you know the middle on that issue actually really support and understand um but you wouldn't know that in the way that that is covered in the media you know, the headlines were just like Joe Biden takes middle road and like compromises. It wasn't Joe Biden, you know, actually tries and reflect where a lot of America is. Um, yeah, so I uh, basically my hope is that the muscle is actually coming from the ground up and the American people like don't want this media environment. But again, that might be way too hopeful and optimistic for these, <laughs> for these times. And kind of zooming into also you mentioned briefly about media representation and last year you spent or in 2022 you spent most of your time covering Ukraine and being on the ground in Ukraine and I'm curious um, being here in America we see everything that's going on in Ukraine through the media and you being there on the ground if there was some sort of disconnect in what was going on in the ground there and what was being portrayed in the media or if there's also any stories that you felt like were undercovered 
I actually think, and this is a, you know, having served in Russia as a journalist for, for several years, also like having, you know, distant family ties, like generations back to Ukraine, like it, it's a country and a story that means so much to me personally. And if you set foot in Ukraine, I mean, the people, just the warmth, um, the their optimism, you know, especially in times like this. You know, they're welcoming. I mean, like, you know, a lot of Ukrainian families, like even in the middle of a war, will welcome you into whatever home they're clinging to and like serve you a meal. And that's more important to them than, you know, how they're going to, you know, survive something so horrific right now. So it's it's a country and a story that's so um, it's important to me. It's important to the world right now. I actually think a lot of the coverage of Ukraine um, has been really good. And, and the best of what we as an institution in journalism can, can be. You know, I think, you know, it's, it is hard to keep, you know, an audience's focus on a country that I think feels so unfamiliar and distant to, you know, a lot of people who are just trying to get about their daily lives and, you know, have a lot of other things going on than thinking about a, you know, a, a country in, in Europe that, that is going through this right now. But I think the persistence of the coverage of a lot of news organizations and also reminding people of of the stakes of this has been really important. Um, and there's been I mean, there's been like the New York Times and others have just done some incredible like just, you know, accountability stories, you know, to look at like some of the, the horrific things that the Russians have done, not in a way that's just like. Well, aren't the Russians bad? They're evil. But like, let's understand, you know, on the ground in Bucha, like how absolutely awful this was. War crimes. Um, and that all has been great. I think that when you ask me like what story is not being covered, I think the hard space for me, especially living in Russia, is like how important it is to separate, you know, the Kremlin and the Russian people. Um, and I think that when I hear the story, not so much the way it's covered, but how people are digesting the story of the Ukraine war, there's so much Russia hate. And, and that makes me sad because Russian culture and the Russian people, like, beautiful. Also, like, warm and welcoming. Like, I felt, you know, there were families in all you know, villages across that country who welcomed me in like a visitor, like an American journalist. Like, I was, you know, part of their family immediately. And, you know, you could argue that if you're someone who's um, supporting Vladimir Putin and supporting that regime, then, you know, you have to be accountable for that as, you know, just a, a Russian person. It's like it's your country. But I, I just I don't buy into that. Um, and I think the Russian people are 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 beautiful. And, you know, what's interesting is is kind of coming full, full circle to what you were talking about, like when I bring that up sometimes, I'm dismissed. Like, oh, shut up. Like, don't, like, we need to focus on the Ukrainian people here. Like, they're being victimized by war. And it's like, 100%. Like, yes, could not agree more. Like, this country has been invaded. Russia, I think, has committed war crimes. Like, this war is, I mean, it's awful. Like, and the, not just the future of this beautiful country is at stake and freedom, but like, you know, there's a lot at stake for countries like the United States. No doubt about it. Vladimir Putin is like an evil warmonger. I mean, he's terrible with like so much blood on his hands. But also like in addition to that, it's okay to say that like we shouldn't hate Russian culture for the fact that this war is taking place. And I'd love to see more stories that convey that. And 
two things can be true at the same time. Two things. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> um, and and that doesn't always feel like it's the case these days. Mm. Um, so diving both into you, you mentioned your time uh, in Russia. You also spent some time in in Libya during the Arab Spring, um, and I think that thinking about our domestic political situation in the United States, those two places are so interesting because. Um, the people of Russia are obviously under the grips of an authoritarian government right now under Putin. And, you know, following the Arabs from Libya has been sort of embroiled in, in endless revolution, um, almost. And I was just wondering, those seem to be the two extremes that the, um, you know, the, the entrenched left and the entrenched right in the United States warn that we're going down if we go with the other side. Um, so as someone who has had, um, the opportunity to see both of those places firsthand, to see, um, you know, the the impact of, of revolution and of authoritarianism, um, almost textbook cases. Um, what are what are lessons from your time there that you wish you could convey to the average American today? I mean, it as we look at our foreign policy of the last couple decades, like it, it, you know regime change as a policy of the United States when it is carried out. Um, it's something that, that I hope policymakers, journalists, you know, everyone, like historians, look at and really try and grapple with. Um, because, you know, Saddam Hussein in Iraq and George W. Bush, like a, a much more deadly, globe-changing conflict. Um, but like, you look at the Obama administration and, and taking out Gaddafi, and you know a lot of the fundamental questions about removing leaders, you know, are really the same. And you know, I, I my understanding, and I mean, I, I want to be really careful because I'm a journalist because there are a lot of parts of this story that that people in policy and like who know more could pick apart. But my memory and understanding is that. You know, when NATO was thinking about, you know, beginning the, the campaign, um, the bombing in Tripoli to get Gaddafi out, and I was there when it was starting and it was terrifying, uh, you know, Russia and China were obviously against it. But the U.S., Britain, and France convinced the Russians and the Chinese and the Security Council um, to abstain instead of vote against. But there was an understanding in the Security Council conveyed to, to Russia and to China you know, basically promising, like, this is the last resort. This is not imminent. Um, I think the Russians took that at least as an absolute lie because I think there were French warplanes in the air within, like, you know, days if not hours. And that really damaged the, the U.S.-Russian relationship. Um, and I I think, you know, it's, it's one reason that, that Vladimir Putin has been so, you know, angry and determined to do something like he's doing in Ukraine. Now, people are going to hear this and, like, be pissed off at me, probably, because, like, Vladimir Putin is evil, and you could argue that he would be doing this regardless. But, you know, I just, I think regime change and looking back at the history and, and Iraq and Libya, like, it's really worth, you know, grappling with. And it's so difficult because when there is, like, a movement like you have in in Libya, you know, and the Arab Spring, it it feels like, you know, it just strikes us, I think a lot of Americans in this very emotional way. Like we don't, we don't, we don't believe in tyrants. We want people to be able to like chart their own path in their own future. So it's so easy to like decide like we need to use our power 
to like help a revolution. But it's just, it's a lot more complicated. And, you know, I, you know, I think you ask people on the ground in Libya, like, you know, are their lives better today than when Gaddafi was in power? Like, and I think you could hear a lot of different answers. And that's hard for, I think, us to hear. I'm sure it's hard for people who work in the Obama administration to hear. Um, but that's the lesson, I think. Like, we've got to, we have to grapple with it. And that, that these are really, really hard foreign policy decisions. Um, and sometimes there's no, like, clear cut right or wrong. Even if we think something is morally right, um, you know, taking action on the world stage is hard and can come with consequences. And, you know, I think all presidents who, who make those critical decisions, like, should be held accountable and, and those moments should be really explored by, by historians. And most importantly, like, we should learn lessons from them. But when it comes to Russia, I, you know, it's, it's so tough because, you know, Navalny and Russians who are just fighting for change in that country, it's like, they are so brave and so courageous. And, you know, I watched people like risk their lives to go into the streets of Moscow to protest. And it really is risking your life because, you, could, you know, you could go to prison, like you could get, I mean, who knows what can happen. Um, and it's like you want them to succeed and you want to do anything you possibly can to help them succeed. And, and I think like it's okay to feel that way and to feel that passion and to feel that, that sense of like connectivity and we're with you, even if like you can't figure out the thing to do that would help them in this moment. And, you know, you don't have to beat yourself up for like saying like, you know, I'm failing them right now. Like we're all doing the best we possibly can. And I'm just hoping that there's going to be a day soon when, you know, countries like the United States can embrace like change that comes from within in Russia. Uh, it might be a long time. I don't know when it's going to happen and it could be incredibly violent and messy, which is terrifying. Um, but you know, it's, it's hard. And I, I think one of the weird lessons for me, having covered, you know, places like Libya and places like Russia has been to try and look at our own country, you know, from an outside perspective. It's like I visited these places and understood, you know, when there's a total absence of democracy. And then now that our democracy is just like under such strain and a lot of the political forces at work on the extremes um, are just like shaking the foundation, you know, to, to think about something like January 6th, you know, from an outsider who was just, you know, coming to cover the United States, I just, you know, I would think about some of the the headlines like you know I'm a correspondent from I don't know Belgium and I'm in the capital of the United States and you know the capital is under attack and there's tear gas that like smoke from the tear glass gas is like you know obscuring you know the 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 my ability to see the American flag flying it's like crazy stuff and it's some of the same language that I would have used to describe you know conflicts in other countries and and it's just wow mm. David Green, we're about out of time. Thank you so much for joining us here at Fly on the Wall and here at the Institute of Politics and Public Service. It is my pleasure. Your questions are great, and I, I love being here. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to Left Right Center, available everywhere you can find a podcast. Everywhere you can find a podcast. Sounds great. From KCRW. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Fly. 
You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kelvin Doe, Zan Hawk, Robin Wang, Kenneth Jackson, and Julian Zeitlinger. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Austin Culpepper. Our production team is Max Paley and Will Hayes. Emeritus Managing Director is Sam Kehoe. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of The Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.